0: All right, good morning. Now our holiday season is officially over. Uh, historically in the English church, tomorrow would be what was often called Plow Monday. The idea that you've had Christmas, you've had Advent, Christmas, and now it's Epiphany, so get back to work. So hopefully this will be a message that helps us to get back to work on Monday morning, which for me will also be, I guess it is Plow Monday, because now break is over and I have to actually go back into the classroom. Now, the Beatitudes that we read today are very interesting. They've been studied by Christian scholars from the early Roman church to the Orthodox church, the African church, the South Asian church, all focusing on this idea of Jesus giving us an understanding of what it is to be truly ourselves and to have a good life. And to think of it, I think of it that the king is giving us instructions on how he wants us to live and how he wants us to almost mimic his attitude and his his behavior towards the world and that there is a distinction between what we might desire for ourselves and the way we're actually created to be. You know, that being blessed is in fact that state of returning us to where we should be. That Christ is helping us to go back to where we were meant to be before the fall. This idea of this morally positive satisfying that Coincides with joy and true happiness that He brings, which is distinct from our own perceived happiness, and therefore, what Christ offers is often countercultural or counterintuitive. That our perceived happiness is often circumstantial; we associate it, as humans do, with pleasure. It's not really always morally upright because you can take pleasure in things that are that are wrong, and it often is not necessarily satisfying or fulfilling. But what Christ is giving us here is that you will be blessed. You will be in your proper state if you do these things, if you are behaving in the way that I'm telling you to reorient your life and your viewpoint. Now, the Eastern Orthodox have an interesting quote that I like about being poor in spirit because often we think of poverty of spirit as something that is bad or negative or that we are poor spiritually. But what they're saying is it actually means to recognize clearly that one has nothing which is not received from God, that we, it, that we are nothing except by the grace of God, that this blessed poverty is called spiritual because, first of all, it is an attitude of the mind and heart, a conviction of the soul. It is a condition of man in total emptiness and openness before God, primarily in relation to the things of the spirit, that is, to the understanding and insight to will and desire that even our grace that we receive as Christians is nothing we did to deserve it. Our salvation is completely and totally a gift. Even that belief that we have is a gift from God. So we come to God completely spiritually poor, emptied out and receiving what Christ has to offer. And in that, we are blessed because what Christ has to offer is more than what we could ever give to ourselves, even imagine to prepare for ourselves. Likewise, when we think of meekness, This is contrary to what his audience would have expected. If you think of uh, the Israelites under Roman occupation, if you think of the Romans and the Greeks themselves, this was a world built on power dynamics, of the strength of the empire over and against everyone else and people desiring a king who would have power to overthrow this empire. But Christ reorients us towards meekness, which is to be gentle and kind and empty of selfishness and earthly ambition. To not return evil for evil, but always in everything to overcome evil by good. That meekness means to distrust and reject every thought and action of external coercion, which in any case can never produce fruitful, genuine, or lasting results. That we are once again reorienting ourselves to be dependent on Christ, and in giving that up, we achieve happiness and joy. We are no longer driven hither and thither by these desires and passions, we're focused on something greater, and that actually produces for us a peace. That man's life is constantly to be seeking and hungering after righteousness, as opposed to other hungers and thirsts that may lead us astray. That this satisfaction and rest will come from God. That man was made to have these desires, and therefore by reorienting ourselves towards Christ, we are once again living our full life in who we should be. But then we come to one like mercy, and this would have seen kind of I like, yes, merciful to your friends, but merciful to your enemies. And mercy can sometimes, especially today, be confused with permissiveness. But as Christ is pointing us toward himself, and through himself he points us towards the Father, we should know this can't be the case, because that is not how God is. Rather, to be merciful does not mean to tolerate or justify falsehood or sin, it is to leave open the door to reconciliation, to repentance, to have a sympathy for those who are fallen, but also to pull them back to where they should be. It also means not to allow anger and resentment and desire for vengeance to control us, or to quote from uh, that great Anglican, George Washington, and given his advice to the Americans, one which I hope we will actually start obeying, it says, the nation, from its farewell address, which indulges towards another a habitual hatred or habitual fondness is, in some degree, a slave. It is a slave to its animosity or to its affection, either of which is sufficient to lead it astray from its duty and interest. Antipathy to one nation against another disposes each more readily to offer insult and injury, to lay hold of slight causes of umbrage, and to be haughty and intractable when accidental or trifling occasions of dispute occur, hence frequent collisions, obstinate, invented, and in bloody contests. The nation prompted by ill-will and resentment sometimes impels to war the government, contrary to the best calculations of policy. The government sometimes participates in the national propensity and adopts through passion what reason would reject. Other times, it takes the animosity of the nation subservient to the projects of hostility instigated by pride, ambition, and other sinister and pernicious motives. The peace, often, sometimes, perhaps the liberty of nations, has been the victim. Christ is freeing us from this desire from vengeance, anger, and retaliation, and his desire to reorient us towards mercy, towards praying for our enemies. This actually sets us free from this bitterness that can often inhibit our lives and prevent us from having the good life. Whereas others may want to hold on to that, it's not actually freeing, it's controlling. It doesn't actually give you the fullness of what He wants for you, but mercy does. You are set free as you trust God and let God take care of these situations that may afflict you from time to time. The pure of heart are those who have achieved clear-sightedness and a single focus what some scholars have called the single eye. And in many means to, to turn and direct yourself towards the things and intentions of God over and above everything else. That this is more than just the idea of the act of having some kind of chastity or purity of the act within yourselves. It's about you have focused intently and personally on what God has for you, and you've let everything else fall to the side, to the left and to the right and you are singularly focused, what does God want? So that that purity is not just in, I'm behaving well, but I am desiring those things which are God, which also becomes a gift from God, the reorientation of our minds, the idea that we are focused on his church, his mission, his love for humanity, all that is gifts from God, which then focuses us on what is important to well, what should be important to us, and what should be our natural indication of how God has created us, over and opposed to how we have fallen away. Others from the Orthodox Church to the Catholic Church have also focused on the idea of the peacemaker. That the peacemaker is one who bears witness to Christ, takes up his cross, and loses his life for the Lord without fear or anxiety. And that's from the Orthodox Church. Whereas the Catholic Church also says that those who live not only in peace with others, but moreover do their best to preserve peace and friendship among mankind, between God and man, and to restore it what has been uh, disturbed. The idea that we are able to participate with Christ in the restoration of the world, that he has given us a great work to do, that we are not passive, but we're active. He's inviting us along with him. And therefore, we are doing what Adam should have done. We're taking dominion over the earth. We're proclaiming peace throughout the earth. We're proclaiming the gospel. And finally, we are blessed if we are persecuted and slandered for his namesake which is different from the idea of we're being persecuted or we have a persecution complex or the indulgent idea that someone who disagrees with you somehow hates or dislikes you or these different conflicts over identity it's the idea that you're being persecuted for doing the right thing not being called out and called to repentance which can sometimes be countercultural because we tend to think of it as If you are disagreeing with me or challenging me on this issue, it must be because you're being unfair or unkind. But Christ says, no, that only applies if it has to do with someone who is challenging you or criticizing you or slandering you or persecuting you for my name's sake, for righteousness' sake, not just because you are uncomfortable with something. That it's not about you, it is about me. And if you focus on me, then you will have peace and satisfaction. And we can think of contrasting King Jesus and the way he presents this with another king. One of my favorite kings to study and sometimes to criticize would actually be King Solomon. Solomon is instructive because think of everything he has. His father is David. David has established the justice of Israel. He's extended his dominion from the Philistine territories to Damascus. And now Solomon has this great project, the temple. Solomon is actually the guy who's called to build the temple. And he has it built. And then, after having it built, Solomon departs from the Lord. He begins to seek after his own desires, not after the desires of God. He goes after, and he loves many foreign women. They turn him aside. Solomon looks back at everything he's achieved and how he's walked away from God and now finds that he's no longer happy. He's vain. He says, I have said in my heart in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Come now, I will test you at pleasure and enjoy yourself. Behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and pleasure, what use is it? I searched in my heart for how to cheer up my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during a few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, etc., etc. Solomon is seeking satisfaction in pleasure and in new experiences and he's walking away from the mission he's been given by God to rule the kingdom of Israel in peace to direct the people towards truth and justice the things that would have truly satisfied him and at the end of pursuing every earthly pleasure having every kind of luxury that a late, or sorry, an early Iron Age king could have desired Solomon is not happy or satisfied and then we could then look at St. Paul St. Paul is in a Roman prison. St. Paul expects to be executed for the faith. St. Paul is more satisfied in that prison, more comfortable in that prison, looks back on his life and says, I've run my race. All is good. I'm satisfied with where I am. He is more happy in Christ and what Christ has to offer than Solomon is upon the throne of David, for Solomon having walked away from God and sought his own thing. So then how are we created to be? Are we created to be in the way Christ wants us to be? To be blessed in the way he tells us we will be blessed and fulfilled? Or do we want to be like Solomon, who's seeking after all these different pleasures, every experience, every opportunity provided, and at the end, it's vanity, he's unsatisfied, and he's wondering how he got there. It's not a point of picking on Solomon. It's more a point of recognizing the mercy that we live in and having experience christ and being in this period of epiphany where christ has come to earth and has enlightened us to redirect us towards where we should be i mean i look at solomon with compassion and say he began so well and then went off into his own thing and ultimately is unsatisfied happy unhappy and miserable but in christ we have a true joy to where we can be more satisfied in a prison suffering for the faith as saint paul was than a king sitting on the throne of David, who has gone after his own thing and has walked away from what he was called to do. Jesus said himself in John chapter 15, uh, verse 10 through 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus doesn't have this way of life for us to kill joy. He's protecting us from those things that we presume will bring us happiness, but ultimately are unfulfilling and destructive. He's guarding us and redirecting us, and ultimately, he is the one who gives us joy. So amen, and praise to you, King Jesus, who brings us the true joy and protects us from the ways of sin and death.